Hello, everyone. I just wanted to record a brief intro to uh, this podcast framing of the discussion that I got to have with Taylor Wilmot. Taylor Wilmot is a good friend of mine. We've known each other since about 2007. We actually both went to the same university together for our undergraduate degrees, the Evergreen State College. Her and I had some very kind of interesting overlap where we both got really heavily taken in by more of the hard sciences at Evergreen and later shifted towards getting more invested in the humanities and our natural arc of actually becoming therapists. And so we've shared much over the years in following out our separate trainings and becoming therapists and also mediating kind of some of the tensions between having oftentimes paradoxical divisions of thought and often really contentious dialogue. Evergreen attracts students from a variety of different backgrounds. And since we emphasize learning through multidisciplinary lenses and connecting across diverse backgrounds, we would often intentionally have seminar discussion groups that would get very tense at times and would we would value putting forth authentic expressions from diverse perspectives. So it was often a very uncomfortable learning environment. However, at the same time, it really inspired us to build uh, tangible skills. I think that it probably contributed in both of our minds in becoming therapists because you often are mediating between conflict. But I, we have a discussion here to contextualize some of what we've learned and what we can intentionally think about as we go into creating our own more non-traditional, non-hierarchical learning community that I hope to cultivate here. And we want to put on the table some of the things that we've learned and as well as getting some of the insight that Taylor has to offer from somebody with mental health training as we enter an educational space together, things that we can take into account that we're about to face together. And we can, we've discuss some of the benefits that we got from learning while having some potentially challenging dialogue with some of our attention. So I'm excited to, sh- to share this conversation with you. And I think one of the things that's the most interesting about it is getting ahead of, you know, how we can navigate what I'm sure we've all seen as a compromised discussion engaging on social media and the online environment where at least I found that it's really tempting to fall into that classic cycle of the victim, perpetuator, rescuer triangle, or tendencies to scapegoat different members of the community. And we want, I guess, that's something to have always on your mind to see if that's playing out in the educational community that you're part of, if it's playing out in the lens of analysis that's coming through, and how we can maybe look at that even without being too judgmental of it happening. I really appreciated that in this dialogue because I think really connecting with folks with different mental health training and that have had to work collaboratively with diverse perspectives, we can just gain so much from being open to what has what people have learned from this. So I really love this conversation and I hope it gives us some food for thought as we go into building a learning community together. And, you know, some of the paradoxes that come up 
in trying to facilitate a safe space for everyone. And I, the only thing I can know for sure is that I do want their first space for everyone to feel like they can be a valued member at the table. And that really means accommodating difference. And that, my friends, is not an easy thing to do. And I really commend you for showing up and trying and possibly joining us here to aspire to make that happen, even in a very small way. I hope you really enjoyed this discussion. Hey, everyone. I am so grateful that a good friend of mine, Taylor Wilmot, was open to join this module where we're really going over kind of ahead of time how we can be intentional about showing up in this educational community that we're building together and also navigating the nuances of that we're entering this educational community, both as like first and foremost, as like human beings, as our own, we'll learn about what it means to see ourselves as occupational beings. We're also entering this space as therapists with past roles, responsibilities. We talked about, we're bringing all of our roles into this space and this is intentionally an educational community that we're experiencing together where we're all therapists. And those lines can easily get blurred. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we're looking at occupational science as a lens, this is going to be a theme. Mm-hmm. Lines get blurred. Mm-hmm. And we went to an intentionally interdisciplinary college that mm-hmm. also looked at what does it mean to mindfully start blending lines in an effort to better understand the world, our place in it, and how we utilize our educational and intellectual products to benefit the external world and the physical world in a really meaningful way. That was a lot of the questions that we navigated in our undergraduate experience as part of an educational community. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say probably Taylor and I both took a lot of that calling an interest into figuring out how do we use this information in our intellect and what we're exploring educationally to also benefit how we sign up as therapists and how we want to show up as therapists in this world. Mm. So part of the intention is to bring this conversation to you. And we just went through a presentation about the difficult emotions that necessarily come up as we go into an educational environment that is really personally seeking out experiences that can challenge our worldview. So I want to invite Taylor to introduce herself and also know that she's entering the space with a different discipline in having an orientation for mental health. So I just want to have this dialogue where we're already modeling interdisciplinary dialogue and what we can bring and learn from each other from entering these spaces from different backgrounds. So thank you for that long semi-introduction, but Taylor, do you mind giving them some background about how you're entering this conversation. And yeah, I'm happy to. Thanks, Josie. So I went to college with Josie. And like you said, we went to an interdisciplinary college. And we connected in sciences and also multicultural counseling. I continued my track in the direction of multicultural counseling by going to the California Institute of Integral Studies and completing the Integral Counseling Psychology program there. And now I am working towards my licensure as a marriage and family therapist in California and specializing in psychedelic assisted therapy, specifically working with ketamine. So 
it's, it's quite different than occupational therapy, but we've been able to connect and look at some of the similarities in our fields and also some of the differences and also just bringing different perspectives and working off of that. And the spirit of occupational science is also acknowledging that just about any effort that's looking to understand human beings or work with human beings, that it's really best to do that from a multidisciplinary and collaborative partnerships. Mm -hmm. So there's how we're similar, how we're different, but also how can we partner, how we can collaborate, and how can we see see how you're working with occupational beings from a different perspective and different mindset and how are we really working together to support the inclusion, the well-being, the empowerment of diverse humans and even non-humans. I'm going to be an advocate for that across the course. So we really want to model being building respectful partnerships around learning because I think one of the things I wonder in your studies too have you been surprised by just how much isn't completely known about these subjects that maybe have been studied for decades now? Absolutely. I mean, that's something that is an ongoing conversation in the psychedelic space. The question of like how to create these new protocols that have never been really mastered before. And uh, are we missing anything now? And what's going right. to happen in the future? And that. That even there, that sounds like fodder for some potentially like controversial and like transformative learning experiences where, you know, working with new modalities, it can almost be a paradigm shift in breaking down some of those barriers. And I'm, so I thought that we would, part of this is one of, one of the things we're working with is what does it mean to enter an educational community mm. where we know that tough emotions are going to be a part of it? And how do we learn together mm-hmm. knowing that each of us is going to be on a different stage of growth and what it means to enter an educational community and more of a non-hierarchical mm-hmm. space? Because part of the goal of this is we can create maybe some space in this educational experience where the students entering it have a little bit more flexibility to play with these concepts, to have fun with, it, with a little bit less pressure. Mm-hmm. And it can be tough because as we bring up some of these challenging concepts that can really challenge our worldview, sometimes it's like a lot of us as humans will actually get more rigid mm-hmm. about that force of denial. We want to shut things out. Or we want to escape from the situation Mm -hmm. and how different people show up and play. Just like when kids play, if someone shows up a little bit intense or a little bit powerful, Mm -hmm. it can make the experience more uncomfortable for the other person that maybe wants to play in a quiet and more contemplative way. And so I guess I just want this to be an open question between kind of what maybe we've learned now. (laughs) Because I... How would you characterize, like thinking back and reflecting on Evergreen, which that's the undergrad institution we went to that really focused on interdisciplinary learning and learning through dialogue that was not hierarchical. So we never had like a professor at the head of the classroom telling us this is how it is or a textbook that sort of outlined this is the one proper worldview. 
would you say that some of that like non-structured living environment, there were times where maybe it was really fun and empowering and other times where it was like painful and difficult. Do you want to speak a little bit about like your experience (laughs) with that? Yeah. It's all kind of coming back to me right now. And I think something that came up was that depending on who was facilitating the group, made a big difference in terms of how many people were able to feel affirmed in what they were bringing into the group. And I think when the facilitators would be more drawn to one or two or maybe a small, smaller group in the seminar, it creates a real dynamic where there's a hierarchy of who's being more respected in terms of what they're bringing in compared Mm -hmm. to the others. And it doesn't really create a safe environment for the people who are still wrestling and thinking and want more space to come up with their own ideas. Yeah. So that's that's the theme I can see that's happening in the occupational science world. And I think it's broader than the occupational science world when we're talking about what it means to decolonize some of our educational spaces Mm -hmm. where there really has been a tendency towards hierarchies of what types of knowledge or what types of backgrounds are socially giving status on a tier or a hierarchy and that we've been noticing that can be kind of a, a, a an approach that's actually counterproductive yeah. to taking in new information and synthesizing and I think one that we're coming off of as a culture is where we have really put on a pedestal biomechanical mm-hmm. reductionist, very linear mm-hmm. modes of scientific reasoning. I think we're starting to critique where some of that paradigm being mm-hmm. put above other modes of learning has resulted in some systems that aren't at least aren't serving a diversity of different human beings mm-hmm. <laughs> or something. How have you found in your educational experience, how is it navigating in kind of the mental health world, sort of the pendulum swing between these different worldviews, maybe one that's more reductionist, mechanistic, scientific, and physical versus one that's more subjective, qualitative? Right. I appreciate that question because it is interesting in my experience working in science in, in towards my science credits. The seminars took a more debate approach where like somebody has to be right and somebody has to be wrong, which if there is a right or wrong answer, that's an interesting, it's, wonder why are you doing a seminar if there's a right way or a wrong way, if it's not a discussion. So I always was confused by that process. And in my experience in the mental health world, there's more focus on creating understanding between people. So everybody has a different perspective and it's all welcome. And also let's just explore that. What's it like to have be in a room with people who have totally different perspectives than you do? I think it can be a good, almost like a red flag. And I can always feel that in my body. 
I know that I have had times where the background that I'm bringing to the space is maybe like one that is considered like given a lot of status in that situation. And I can feel really good (laughs) to have that sense of finally obtaining that. And I think that's something actually that I wouldn't be surprised is something that like a lot of occupational therapists might be craving because it feels like sometimes there's that stigma to being more of a feely, I want to say like a mushy gushy field and in the mental health, it's often devalued in our current U.S. health system that it feels like, oh, it would be validating and nourishing Mm -hmm. to be the one on top for a little bit. Yeah. And at the same time, I think that's almost something we have to be on guard of because whenever we have a system where one particular perspective is now, quote unquote, the one on top, is that there's something on the bottom. And that really goes counter to an intentionally cultivating a a diverse learning community or a diverse healing community and things like that. Do you think that we need to be mindful of that urge to sometimes seek that? Mm. I almost feel like it is validation in some way. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think mindfulness is always useful. And I, what I've noticed in my experience in science courses is that it just felt like people were really rushing to get their point across. And I'm not sure I saw a lot of mindfulness and it's not surprising if it, if you're not in a space where mindfulness is of value or valued, then why would you care about that stuff? But I think anytime you can slow down any type of process, the more you can engage more people and actually bring people closer together rather than having people repel from each other, which I've seen that happen in debate contexts a lot. Yeah. Everybody hates each other at the end. Is that something that we want to do? I think that's a, one of my intentions in cultivating this learning community is I think I want to engage, create a space where we can engage information where it's not too serious almost. Mm-hmm. That debate is, it feels like this life or death yeah. situation. Mm-hmm. We need to, and I don't want to undersell that we're not doing that work as therapists in our day-to-day lives, we are very often taking on very serious subjects. And I don't want to demean that sometimes in the systems that we're working in, we need to show up with a good debate case or we have to work in these imperfect systems. But that's one of those interplays where I'm hoping to create this space as being an educational context rather than a professional one or a therapeutic one where it's not as high stakes serious that we're coming into this playful environment. And that's because that can be one of those red flags that the environment and the educational environment is maybe getting the spaces breaking down a little bit. And maybe that's just something to get curious about because I think that this is also going to happen because this is how, if we are, getting triggered by new information and it's coming through, it is likely that some of these communication patterns are going to come to fore. I think we've all seen that actually as therapists, that just at the point where someone's really about to go through and the major growth cycle, that's almost where we get the most resistance yes. <laughs> to new information and stuff too. So I think it's important to know that that's just going to happen in this space, even though we're intending to create maybe ground for something different. 
But maybe that's just something to get curious about when we find that we're debating a little bit more or if it feels like there really needs to be a right or wrong answer, or maybe that somebody else is sharing something from a different background and different perspective and it's starting to make us angry. Right. Like that's not supposed to happen. That's not the way it's supposed to work. I, that's something to pay attention to, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think something that's been really amazing to learn about in my field is this is the autonomic nervous system and the stress response cycle. And anytime you have people getting really angry and wanting to fight, that's in my therapist's mind, I'm thinking, okay, they're in hyperarousal state, they're in fight or flight. How do we get them into the window of tolerance? Because it's very hard to have a discussion when you're not in the window of tolerance. So, so I wonder, yeah, how, what are some strategies you think that we can be aware of as we take on some of these challenging topics? Because I, I want there, in, in my wish, I would love for there to be some grace if we show up messy to the space. And sometimes yeah. we might get triggered and we might be in a hyper arousal state. I, my sense is that a lot of the educational systems that we've been in that are very phone formal, very like compliance heavy. It can almost get the sense of, uh oh, if I accidentally out myself as an emotional person or if I show up in a state of hyper arousal, I'm bad, I'm awful, I'm right. an unsafe thing that um you figured out. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, sorry, <laughs> didn't mean to talk okay. over you. I think it's a really important question. And what I'm hoping for is that we can provide more information for people in the first place about this issue. Because I've been talking to a lot of clients and other people about the stress response cycle and the autonomic nervous system. And a lot of people are like surprised. They've never heard of the word window of tolerance before. And as soon as you understand this mechanism, it's much easier to be aware of it without judging it. Because most of the time we also create a story about why we are the way we are in a moment, which might not be fully true or fully accurate to other aspects that we're, we might not be fully aware of. If you're going into a hyperarousal state and you're able to just be like, oh, that's what I'm doing. That's what's going on. I'm stressed out. I'm worried about something. That is the bridge to what do I need to do now? Does that mean I have to leave the room? Does that mean I have to breathe? Do I need to take a break? All these other things. Yes. I'm curious too, and I think this is something that I feel like there's grounds to keep getting better at and to learn from because I think it's normal if we get into a hyper arousal state, we almost lose consciousness mm -hmm. yep. to the world around us. And it is true, like we have that in occupational therapy too, where we talk about flipping the lid and that we're often in a way, we're not in a state to take in much new information or new perspective if we're in what we call like the zones of regulation, it's called uh, the almost the uh, yellow through red zone, the yellow, orange, and red zone. Yep. That can be a hard time to engage in new learning because our like our upper frontal cortex isn't as activated and we can be really easily triggered. And that's actually like a sign too, though. Oh, I need to drink some water. I need to move. I need to have these things. And after we can like soothe, in relation to what practices can bring us back to that mm -hmm. state where we're a little bit more lucid and more practiced. That's obviously a much more 
it's a very enjoyable experience to learn from that state. And it can be a, a much more fun state to play in, as mm-hmm. we've noticed as like therapists. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I want to be cautious of not shaming yeah. going into those different states. Yeah. Because um, it shouldn't be that you're just not allowed to show up. If we create something where it's, like, oh, only if you're in the green zone, mm-hmm. can you be allowed to contribute in some way? Or we somehow then privilege or put on a pedestal those who can express themselves rationally or in a civilized way we're falling into that temptation too Mm -hmm. I love that the first thing that comes to mind Josie as you talk about wanting to make sure we're not prioritizing people who are in the window of tolerance over people who might find themselves hyper aroused or even hypo aroused is I think something in the therapy community that I'm familiar with is group norms like making agreements in the beginning of the process what are we going to do if somebody's in the, these states? Like, how can we help? That's, I have to be honest that in this program, that's going to be an open question that we have to navigate together. Because this is a kind of an experiment of putting an online asynchronous experience that's going to maybe cover some content that really could inspire some of those red zone emotions and those transform, like those things. And I guess what I'm leaning towards is maximizing the amount of choice that you have in engaging in the content and that I'm just going to reinforce a lot of different diverse ways of showing up Mm -hmm. and maybe just being transparent that there are going to be limits to how much, because I don't really want to control how people show up in this space because that's part of what we have to learn from. We try to create a very... um, I think there's some forms of creating a safe space where it's like very well controlled and very tightly, you know, exactly what's going to expect. That could be some people's definition of a safe space is really knowing ahead of time how everything is going to unfold and what is and is not okay. Mm -hmm. And I just have to be transparent that part of where I'm wanting to create a safe space for diverse perspectives and different people to play and learn is we're not really going to know ahead of time exactly how everyone's going to show up and who's going to. So there's almost a level of some personal responsibility that I want to impart without Mm -hmm. hopefully being individualizing this and saying, Oh, this is your fault. Is that want you to part of play at the playground here too, is making sure that you're encouraged to connect with other supports and diversifying the supports Mm -hmm. that you're seeking to help you be in a place that's readiness to learn and participate in some of these experiences. Yeah. I think what you're saying is that you're in a way you're trying to prepare to create those limitations and preparations, like information to prepare people going in to what they can come to expect. I know that we can't really fully offer that experience yet. So I want to be, maybe hopefully have some informed consent that we're going to discover some of this together and hopefully have an openness to learn from each other Mm -hmm. um, where we really do want to create, I think, a safe space for some emotional expression. Mm -hmm. But maybe note that if you're a learner that really does, it can be very, like, put you out of that zone of tolerance if somebody else is also going through a difficult time or is being really transparent with Mm -hmm. how they're showing up emotionally. Mm -hmm. I want you to feel that you have like you have grace, you don't have to participate in this. But I think we very much want to create something where we're not controlling how others are expressing and how they're showing up. 
and noting to the difference between emotions expressing in a space and information in a space. Mm-hmm. Cause sometimes there's just information that's really difficult to hear and it can really inspire an emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. And I think we come from a culture that so pathologizes having an emotional experience that we want. It encourages repression of emotional reactions that sometimes the information can seem like it's an insult somehow, yeah. or it's the thing that hurt you. Mm-hmm. Or that another person's emotional reaction, if it caused you an emotional reaction, it can be almost easy to interpret that as an insult somehow mm-hmm. or something that was violent when really it's just the expression of information or the expression of emotion. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily something that is an act of mm-hmm. violence necessarily. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm do you think? What you're yeah, sorry. Oh, so sorry. Um, just saying that I was taking in what you're saying. And I'm curious what your question was as well. I'm curious too, do you have, has anything come up in some of the educational environments that you've been a part of or in the therapeutic and mental health about how can we be present to when something's an emotion that's not a hurtful thing or in response to that, are there any tools that you've gained or is that a conversation that's also come up in the mental health world on how we can appreciate emotions and information almost separate from that. I guess I'm curious your thoughts around that and what you could offer or building skills like that. Yeah, I think it's something that comes up quite often. Something that I've been aware of is in the spaces that I've done learning in for my psychology degree, there's an emphasis on acceptance not necessarily in terms of it's like around not judging your emotional experience, not suggesting that it's, it feels good, but to accept that this is the way I feel and to not make, try to not make a big story about it and to try to just be with what the emotion is. And the other one that I would say is um, intention versus impact. Mm. And exploring what that means to different people can you elucidate that a little bit for um i'm not sure if i actually have a solid understanding of it of those that maybe haven't heard of it before too so it's something that is usually discussed in the beginning of classes that i've been a part of where the professor will make space to discuss like how just because somebody doesn't intend to be to create discomfort for somebody else or be hurtful or whatever it doesn't mean that the impact doesn't happen and so making space for somebody who feels impacted a certain way without jumping to the conclusion that person intended to do something that was on both sides because I think we've all probably been in situation where we've made an expression and it's had an impact that was less than desirable mm-hmm. that's part of what my intention with this is to be transparent that's like you might have those experiences interacting with this information it might have an impact that's not pleasant at first and so knowing that it's not the intention but it probably can happen that we're going to have un- uncomfortable experiences as we engage in potentially challenging and at times divisive topics and I think as community members I think it's it's important to be aware in how folks can be hurt or what states can cause folks to not feel welcome in a space. And so 
if we can, mm-hmm. um, if we can think about how we show up and, and learning to maximize those feeling welcome. But I have a feeling that it's not an easy answer to that question, right? Because it, there's a paradox there too, because I think to like, we've faced this, I think, as occupational therapists in the realm of like sensory sensitivities mm-hmm. and sensory differences. Mm-hmm. So some people need a lot of input. They need a lot of sensory information. I'm one of those people. I need to, I have a lot of visual input on my walls and different information. I need a lot of stimulation to be in that readiness. Others need like pure minimalism and low volume and they need, you know, and to accommodate both of those learners in the same space at one time for somebody that noise is violent to their body and painful versus mm-hmm. me as an auditory learner that I need that to be saturated. It's, it's almost a, an impossible question to yeah. have. Absolutely. And I think the thing that I want to add around this is you can be as intentional as possible. And every now and then there's still going to be a rupture. And maybe it's helpful to think about how are we going to manage a rupture if it comes up? So having more of an attitude towards like repair and humility rather than perfection. Right. Because I think even sometimes with trying to make accountable spaces, which I get it. I used to work in school-based therapy. So we have this idea of IEPs are legal documents. We got to get this right. We got to get this perfect. And if you don't accommodate this, you're breaking the law. And that's where we get in those life or death serious situations. And often as we're like building a new learning community together where things aren't as well established and trying to have that spirit of play, there's this awareness that we're going to learn from the mistakes that we make. Mm-hmm. And there almost isn't such a thing as this pre-decided sort of constitution of everybody doing things right or wrong. Yeah. We almost need to be responsive and learn from each other because really whose who's sensory needs are more important, the auditory saturation person or the one that needs minimal auditory impact? They're both experiencing something that's compromising their ability to access, participate, we really have to find ways to mediate and accommodate both people. They're both occupational beings that have human rights that deserve those things. So we have things to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. I think that's, Um, I love that like way of putting it because I can just appreciate the effort you're putting in and others have put in to, to be as, inclusive as possible because it's again we all need to put that effort in right too i think that's one of the problems in what in some of the traditional learning environments too is are like in the united states where we do appeal towards hierarchical authority to mediate conflicts and to um facilitate community mm-hmm. is we look to you know who's the professor and who's the teacher and who's the person whose responsibility this is. Mm -hmm. And really to make a truly inclusive society, living environment, community that we live in, that's really going to take effort from all of us that are open to get a little bit uncomfortable by Mm -hmm. understanding how our communities 
are impacted by how we show up in the diverse forms that we naturally show up as humans. I think we need to shift the paradigm a little bit and noting that this isn't just the professor's responsibility or the government's responsibility or the media's responsibility. And that circles back to also a point that I wanted to have with you too about scapegoating that can come up sometimes in a lot of dialogue with things. I'm curious, as a somebody that's trained in mental health things, could you, could you give a working definition of what that's? Yeah. Scapegoating in my opinion is when either one person or a group of people focuses on many of the negative attributes of another person at the expense of some of their positive attributes. And from what, I've taken in about it or like how I've made some meaning of it is that whenever it goes from, we have this shared problem that we're all facing. If all of that sense of something's not going right, Mm -hmm. if you can almost zero and make that a really intense thing and then put it on a, as like a target on a specific groups, belief Mm -hmm. systems, things back. And then you can say, oh, I know what the problem is, the existence of this thing. And it almost seems to be a tendency of just actually avoiding the problem. Right. Rather than facing it as a community and taking in how really, usually if a problem exists in a system, there's like multiple causal factors and links that everyone has invested in, divested in, that needs to be part of a solution. So I, that is something that I wanted to see. That's a good sign of a educational environment not really being a healthy one or not a good environment of play. If there's a sense of scapegoating that's starting to come up, mm-hmm. it seems to be like that's a time where we might be avoiding some yes. really important questions and maybe even avoiding our own responsibility in creating a solution. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely accurate. And I think one thing that I wanted to really point out about what you're saying is the tendency towards generalization and how that really can lead anyone and any group in the direction of scapegoating something with someone. I think I saw that a lot at Evergreen where it would be choosing who could be the target of what's a good example. Oh, it's the, I don't know. For example, we would maybe talk about, I, I remember one seminar conversation focusing a lot on the impacts of tourism mm. and, oh, this is all the tourists that are doing this and this situation. And it's, if we can zone out and have a broader view of how sort of these systems perpetuate in a, often problems they have, it, it takes two to tango. There's right. a dialectic in this. And we all have our role, too, of, okay, well, if we're looking at the harms of international tourism, mm-hmm. what sort of different choices can all the different stakeholders be making to mm-hmm. have this be a better experience? Because, like, for example, the lens of tourism, you have maybe a lot of the 
in, in indigenous communities to that really wanting to attract tourism because it's part mm-hmm. of how they're economically sustaining. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's causing harm to the community, the formats that it's having in, but maybe that's part of the agency of the small businesses that are run by indigenous populations are cultivating it in such a way that it's actually empowering for them. And that's a big question. But if we're only looking at, oh, the individual tourists themselves, we mm-hmm. may not fully be taking on a really mindful perspective of the full problem or the different yeah. opportunities for solution. That's, I don't know if that's the best example, but. I think that's a fine example. I think you're pointing out that that how in scapegoating circumstances that blind spot can get developed and that can lead to a whole host of problems if you're trying to create an educational environment because then what are we learning if we're missing out on some really valuable and important information? And I think scientifically too, it's not the best way to enter a state of inquiry too because you almost want to have, especially in that initial stage of the observation, you don't want your data set too skewed from the start. It will limit what sort of questions and options are on the table in terms of who the different collaborators can be. Mm -hmm. Um, And then one of the other things that I wanted to get your perspective on too in is one of the things I've heard about a lot is the victim perpetrator savior triangle. Is that something that's come up in your past studies and conversations? Yeah, it's got, I've heard people refer to this dynamic in many different ways, but my, one of my current mentors talks about the top dog underdog effect. Mm. And uh, I think it's the same idea. One person feels emboldened to take an approach where they're above another or a group that they might have more information or maybe more know-how, more wisdom. It can even come out in age if somebody is older than another person in the group or people in the group, and they might think that they know more about life. And then mm-hmm. the people who are younger or in the underdog category, they're, they can also play into it where they reenact that they are maybe helpless or that they don't have the information it's called it's called under functioning in some circles so mm-hmm. it's it's a similar idea of around attraction and how in terms of balance in in groups people feel almost seduced to take a side and then they play out that side even if it's not really helping them or the group. Maybe be a familiar role. That's great. Maybe that's a good example of this transformational thing of reflecting on some of the roles that we've played mm-hmm. in past educational environments. And right. that's where really like whole thing is like having some space to maybe try out different roles mm-hmm. and different things, which oh. I've heard that too, even in playing on some folks will have a really great experience. And if say they classically been in a system where they've been in a more submissive role Mm -hmm. that you can almost role play in more of a dominant role and as long as it's like a consensual process that everybody's aware of then that can be like a healthy playful growth process or something too which is why it's I want to create some space where this might be messy because you might want to try out learning in different ways and breaking out some of these rigid roles but it seems like 
this triangle thing that I've heard about, and that's a great way of framing it, is that there can be um, a really strong compulsion mm-hmm. in some groups. And to me, it links to that idea of scapegoating because there's usually a problem and uh, we have a victim here and we have, we need to bring in the right savior and we have somebody that's the problem. Right. And if that's driving the space, I, I feel like this is constantly what's playing out like on social media and Twitter and things like that is there's usually someone that's been wronged. And then there is the saviors that are coming in with the right corrective action. And there's obviously a villain that initiated it. And it's a really comfortable role system to play, but Mm -hmm. it maybe doesn't get us all moving forward into Mm -hmm. new ways of relating and creating community it's something that it seems like a lot of people have felt it's once you play those roles it's often not serving everyone that's involved in it most definitely and when you were talking about about the systemic aspect of this triangle it actually made me think about something one of my mentors was talking about to me around subgroups she actually is a prison psychologist and she works with groups in a subgrouping systemic way. So what she does is she follows what the, she would call it maybe like the top group is focused on. And usually they will always take the lead because they feel more more comfortable in the group. There's a lot of different reasons why the main group is going to take the lead. And then the more quiet people, she would call the subgroup. And so she always, for the sake of balance, will call out the subgroup. What does the subgroup think? Hello, tell me subgroup. And that actually give, invites the people who've taken an underdog role to take a different role. Yeah. Okay. So maybe that's a good context of maybe acknowledging that we, we probably will go into this tendency because it's a, it is a strong tendency. And I will hopefully talk in my occupational profile being enculturated as a Midwestern Caucasian female in a Christianized context, mm-hmm. I take so strongly to being a white savior. Mm-hmm. Like that is such a strong propulsion and drive and a way that I feel a lot of cultural validation often. And so it's one of those things where, okay, I'm just going to know ahead. I'm going to likely play this role, but maybe we can experiment in adopting a different perspective and see what it's like to take on the different role in that or something. And as long as that it's play and not as serious it might be an interesting way to expand and change and morph and evolve that triangle because we might not be able to fully reject that triangle and fully get rid of it it's probably part of us yes how can we play with it maybe in different ways so that it has maybe different results as scientists right we're experimenting yeah I love that idea it actually takes me back to some drama therapy groups that I've been a part of where we do a lot of different things to scramble people into different roles or perspectives that they're not immediately going towards. So one way to do that would be doubling. So you actually have one person find somebody in the group to be their double. And so whether that person agrees with the person or not, they just, they experience, they follow that person and see what it's like. And then they can give feedback to that person. And then that person can give feedback to them. And then there can be switching and you can try to be the double or 
have somebody double you. It's there's a lot of interesting things you can do in play and experimentation in groups. I think that's that's such a great a strategy, and it's showing how these lines blend. Like some of what we're discovering in therapy, what happens if we try that out in an educational environment? That mm. like, and I want to be like clear. Yeah, this isn't intentionally a therapeutic space, but us as a lot of us that have maybe backgrounds in school-based occupational therapy, that's a good example of where, hey, mm-hmm. we are mediating a therapeutic experience in an educational environment. Mm-hmm. So while this isn't explicitly therapy necessarily, but we're playing around with what it can look like to adopt different perspectives, to have different outcomes. And mm-hmm. what you're saying there, it, it lends really well to some of the current developments in occupational sciences, which mm-hmm. is like, how do we develop methodologies mm-hmm. of getting embodied appreciation of the nuances of subjective experience to to answer some of those questions scientifically they're looking at doing like formalizing what you're saying as part of actual study and investigation is we're used to using interviews for example but there's limitations to interviews don't give you a full understanding of the embodied experience of somebody else Mm -hmm. so we're formalizing like what it means to understand a different community a different culture and i like even just right now i got oh trigger you can go wrong because like you want to be careful in how much you mimic another culture perspective or community and how you do that and with consent so i think that these necessarily are going to be very tricky questions that we just need to be in dialogue about yeah yeah i think and even if you don't fully follow through the experiment I think the dialogue about what if is so powerful as well and maybe too maybe this is a blessing of this triangle too is if it if we know that this is like something that comes back to in our culture and it's something to be aware of mm-hmm. even conceiving it of okay right now I'm playing the role of the perpetuator like right yeah. now I'm the enemy but right. maybe separating also your humanity from these roles and knowing that you as a human being, as something are more than how, if part of feeling unsafe in a space is that you've been typecast into a specific type of role or thing, I think it's important for us to also work through the fact that humans are plastic, that we are evolvable, that we have these generalized capacities to know that just because you're in a place that put you in that role, Mm -hmm. To work really hard that you don't fix yourself in that role, that you can keep imagining new possibilities Mm -hmm. um, for yourself. And that even if you're not finding support, I don't think that this environment I build is going to be supportive to everyone. But I would hope that everybody that enters it has permission to -hmm. seek out what is supportive and to feel that they are being encouraged in their own adult learning that uh, they deserve a supportive, inclusive environment and that we're going to support finding that somewhere that you can get the meaning from there. I think that's really valuable in what you're saying about what it takes to even create something like this and the downfalls that could possibly come up and also the, the positive elements that could come out of it as well. It could be an I we're just in a social situation. We're navigating multiple levels of global crises. So I think we have to all give each other some grace yeah. and be open to learn and 
different measure and know that it's going to be painful to take on some of these questions. Um, what, um, do you have any other things that feel that come to mind that you would wish like from a therapist perspective for how uh, folks that are going through a little bit of a crisis, mm-hmm. how can they support themselves? What mindset to have in going into a potentially challenging learning environment or challenging topics? Yeah, it's not an easy question. It's something actually I've been wrestling with a couple people this week. But I think finding sources of agency is so important. If you're going to be very, if you know that you're more sensitive, maybe finding a group where it's going to be okay to just remove yourself from time to time and take care of yourself. Or even seeing if there's maybe short-term groups so that you can get a taste and then come away from it and digest and then see if you want to go back to a new one. Flexibility, I think, is really important. One of the last things, too, and feel free to add in if there's anything that you can think of from that last question, too, is the nuance of intersectionality and how some of these challenging topics like colonialism, imperialism, systemic harm, racism, oppression, it's actually going to hit people in different ways. And it's normal for different communities to maybe need different supports Mm. around those questions. And I just wonder if you have any insight in that. I know that I don't want to be presumptuous, but I know that we did have some demographic imbalances at the Evergreen State College. (laughs) Not necessarily. And I feel like that probably put you in sometimes some uncomfortable (laughs) experiences or do you have any like wisdom to share in cultivating an intentional learning community of how to acknowledge the intersections of like demographic changes in different cultural contexts and, and also in relation to your background in studying multicultural counseling and education in that regard? Is there some wisdom that we can <laughs> be more aware of at least going into this project? I appreciate that question. It's, it's just something that I continue to chew on. So I don't have a, a complete thought, but it might, some things that come to mind are for people who come from like marginalized spaces. I think it's really important to be kind to yourself and really understand like, what is your limit? And if you're like, if you're finding yourself like more triggered by like a person who's from more of a majority space, then take it easy. There's no need to push yourself into something that you think you're going to feel harmed in. And also for people who come from a more majority space and they're coming in and they want to be sensitive to people. I think curiosity is like the most important thing, but humble curiosity. You know what? I don't. I will say that I've heard in the culture through that sometimes curiosity can be something that will feel demeaning like asking certain questions like where are you from or those things yeah I think that's important so yeah like I one example is I remember witnessing a person talking to an immigrant from China and she was from Texas she was trying to be nice but she was asking her questions about food in a way that just had this like tone to it of 
like entitlement. And so I think if you're going to be curious, try to find ways where you can maybe offer an open-ended statement where the person can offer what they want to, but not feel like pigeonholed into like actually answering a question. Like more, I'm really curious about these aspects of this culture. Do you want to talk about it? No. Okay. Thank you. One of the things that I guess has been helpful to me lately, and maybe get your reaction to it, and I'm hoping inviting another interview to play this out, is, is being somebody that comes from small town, middle America, Midwest, acculturation, and also acknowledging, too, some of the parts of, if you are part of a culture that really shelters your perspectives and limits and really shapes how different parts of the world are framed. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to acknowledge that is also, I think to me, a sign of when there's been an occupational imbalance and sort of some systemic injustice that has limited our ability to connect with other humans and to interact with information in a different way. So I want to be an ambassador to help hopefully break down some of that. But what's been helpful to me is sometimes in we, because the white culture is presumed to be the dominant default and neutral, it's common for a lot of people that are socialized from Caucasian lineages to avoid the question of what white culture is and what Caucasian lineage look comes from or the sense of not having a culture, which in a way can be very depriving to just human beings in general that benefit from from culture, expression, connection, and community and invalidating that as a white person, it's not that you don't have a culture and that you don't have a rich, complex tapestry of experiences. I would say in my openness to this question, I found really interesting corollaries between intergenerational trauma and diversity in my family systems and down those lines. And I think if you can get in touch with that as a white person too, or somebody from these more dominant culturals talk positions of allowing you to reflect and get to the inquiry, I think it becomes easier to then understand how you can respectfully be in dialogue and in humility about somebody else's culture, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Absolutely. I think that's really meaningful. Just in terms of like white culture and white identity, I think that's maybe the harm that white supremacy has even done to white people is that there's this homogenization and then you don't really feel like you have a a connection or a root system to anything. And I wager that probably affects other folks too that are pressured to adopt a white culture or there's a lot in terms of what's it called assimilation absolutely and I think that's important because I so I come from a a very diverse background I'm multi-racial multi-racial multicultural one side of my family actually came here escaping the Irish potato famine and it was not easy for them to integrate into this culture either. There's a lot that can be learned about all immigrants, 
especially European immigrants and what your people have had to go through in terms of assimilating and homogenizing into this American white culture. It's the shared and it's, yeah, those of us that are into this from a dominant position that can almost be a temporary position and something that hasn't been, uh, there's so much complexity, these questions that I think we all get to be a part of digesting and sometimes too, like everybody that's accessing this program, like it's that you are maybe a prospective occupational therapy student or a clinician. We've been able to really get that dominant position on many different pyramids and tiers. So that's something that we care with, uh, carry with us um, to reflect on. So this is, I think, work for all of us to digest what it means to be part of a social culture that really reinforces hierarchies of dominance and that we don't get out of it just because we fit an image of, again, that victim perpetrator triangle, which is not to say it's not valid, that we need to work together to dissect and inquire about that and find opportunities for agency Mm -hmm. where we're outside of a system where somebody is necessarily below us. So I think that's something, too, that I want to cultivate a space that just, you know, just because you're entering the space with an identity politics of being a a white person from the Midwest or a person of color from an urban environment or a new immigrant, we all have grounds to be dissecting this work with a curious and open mind to how all of us could be playing those roles in different circumstances and that can shift across the environments that we enter. I think we all know that as consumers of mental health services and consumers of healthcare services. In one moment, we're the gatekeeper that has the degree and that we're potentially imposing a harmful belief system on someone. And the next moment, you're walking into the clinic as a consumer of healthcare services, interacting with the same maybe invalidating experience. So in that you're the same human, but you're shifting context and all of that's valid and worthy of inquiry and dialogue and discussion about. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's my hope that people could enter a space like this with some openness and so possibilities that they hadn't expected. And, and also to, yeah, take a look at what role you feel like you're playing when you first start a group and then see if you want to try to change and play a different role. Do you, have you talked about in your groups too? I imagine that this is something that your programs would maybe endorse or to play around with too. As we get the invitation, maybe you, through more of the social scientist lens too, to let the system be the villain yes, <laughs> but, yes. and let some of the structures that have been put into place that yes, we are necessarily a part of as part of the social ecosystem that we're in globally. I guess we somewhat get some permission to let the structures and the institutions and the patterns to be, it's better to let that be the scapegoat and the bad guy. (laughs) That if you find that it's going out on people and individual persons in a way, that's almost a sign that our analysis is getting farther away from really, it just seems more constructive. We can get to a point of seeing how the whole ecosystem is producing patterns that are harming people. Absolutely. I think that's really valuable. And it actually takes me into internal family systems and how we will look at 
internally people have a perpetrator, a villain, and a savior within. And we want to try to see if there's value. We want to create space for valuing all those parts because they all have really important knowledge that they're bringing to the table, really important perspectives. And so if we can approach a group like this with that openness to all these different roles that people can play in the group, even the villain. Yeah. So maybe we just need to own Mm -hmm. our like maybe potential Disney villainous sometimes that being the instigator and being the propagator, we're also bringing some visibility of where there could be pain in a system and that you really, it is helpful Mm -hmm. in a repair process, which occupational science, occupational therapy, and being a licensed marriage and family health counselor, we're signing up to try to be these agents that can constructively mediate experiences that can feel better for the Mm -hmm. people that we're connected to. That's a good thing to know about that maybe we don't want to enable the perpetrator or have these things. Maybe that's a nuanced question, but the the instigator is part of our solution, whether we like it or not, that it sounds like if we just cut out the villain, we're not going to get the solution that we need. So we actually, everybody needs to be welcome to this puzzle if we're going to actually solve it and put it into a different form for everybody. I love that. I think like it might be even interesting in a group if you could have some kind of exploration around, okay, what roles are everybody playing and what let's everybody individually identify the pros and cons of each of those roles. And what are you learning from those? So that's a great idea. And maybe that's something that we can play around with in this group. And I know, Taylor, I think you're interested too. This is the first course on the Evolved Living Network, but we want to do more intentional interdisciplinary partnerships and building relationships. So even if that doesn't happen in this space, maybe that's something we can play around with in a future course on this platform. But that's, I think, a great information invitation for all of us in going into this learning is also viewing this information and think about it putting on different role play hats different uniforms of how you would see this information from different vantage points and then maybe as a scientist too if you're trying to see it from a different perspective go look for evidence see how what are they talking about on youtube from that perspective what sort of dramatic or poetry has been written from that perspective and mm-hmm. maybe see how close your hypothesis was to accuracy. And maybe if you think, oh, this role views these things this way, maybe mm-hmm. intentionally look for somebody that also has that role that has a completely different take on it. Mm-hmm. I think often if we're open to the information, often this data sort of contradicts itself. And yeah. Especially with culture, there's no such thing in my family lineage we all share the same ancestry. We say we share a lot of the same geographic cultural context, but just about any family system, I think, if you go into it, there's yeah. not a lot of homogeny. It, right. it all impacts everybody differently. And I think we have to understand that's part of living when a human a social system is there's just a lot of diversity. Yes, most definitely. And in a sense, I often wonder why we wouldn't think of education as celebrating diversity because aren't, aren't we getting educated to learn about the world and all different types of perspectives? Hopefully we're 
I'm going to create some inroads to deinstitutionalizing some of what this, where this can take place. Because I think a lot of that does come from the systems that education tends to take place in. And I think that's giving ourselves permission to play, which mm-hmm. you guys get to be a part of this because this is having outside of, it's loosely affiliated with academia, but eventually we want to take this learning outside of academia and playing with this notion about what it means to be a lifelong learner and a critical consumer as a occupational therapist and a constructive consumer of how we can build relationships for new systems. We're going to have to take this learning outside of these institutions that tend to fix us into roles that are usually hurtful to everyone involved. So feel free to, in this to play with different roles and have some grace with each other as that comes up and connect to some of the resources and suggestions below. But do know that you're signing up for a bit of an adventure in this program and we're going to look and lend towards repair. There's not a right and wrong answer in this group, unfortunately. If you need that for safety, this might not be the safest learning environment, but we do want it to be hopefully an enjoyable and constructive one for you. Mm-hmm. And I just want to, if you don't have any, do you have any final thoughts or anything, Taylor, this feeling like a natural segue point? So we'll include the resources below from this and just know that with any topics that we, this is just the tip of the iceberg, if there is one, and we hope that it inspires you to keep exploring and looking under different rocks and different pebbles of what you can discover and even what you can contribute. All that's already been put forward and published and is official on these topics is still ever evolving. And you have an empowered place within the unfolding of this educational environment. So I want you to feel empowered to explore and discover new things that maybe we don't know yet. I think that's well said. And I'm appreciating being part of this. And I hope that it gets underway really on a good note. Thank you for being part of welcoming into this discussion. And I think that we both can affirm that joining in experimental learning communities as much as it's also been a tough learning experience to learn that way, it has been one that I think has helped us see, would you say that because even going from Evergreen and some of the more non-traditional schools that you have, you probably have a broader view of what's possible as a therapist than maybe those even that went through a more traditional context. I think so. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate the fact that Evergreen really focused on not not making your scope too rigid as far as what information you can learn and dabble in and I think people who go into specialized fields can sometimes get very like limited and I love just being able to expand and just learn as much as possible about all kinds of different topics and I think that's the value of doing this type of learning. I'm perfect at it but I want to say I I will probably credit going through an interdisciplinary learning experience of learning maybe how to be respectful from different, different traditions of knowledge. Cause I don't think I'm always been perfect or done it diligently, but like it's helpful if you can learn enough about a different field or a background to speak with folks that are ambassadors of that in a way that it, it honors the investment that they put into it. It's, hard to be respectful of a culture that you don't know anything about and it's almost through making mistakes 
acts and being that being that perpetrator. I can certainly say that I have made mistakes as an ambassador of science Mm -hmm. in the social sciences and being particularly like a cisgendered female and projecting some of my roles onto other communities. Mm -hmm. I've also just learned how by making mistakes, by being open to enter that dialogue and learn about different perspectives Mm -hmm. that will naturally over time trend towards humanizing and being respectful of those different fields of inquiry and understanding. Mm Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on this discussion. I wanted to guide you briefly in how you can access an exercise on the UpCoach platform to sort of join us in reflecting on this discussion today. Um, Underneath this discussion, underneath the slides, you'll see a link with a box that has a little squiggly line on top of it that says the Disorienting Dilemma Toolkit Reflection Question. This is an UpCoach Smart Worksheet, which allows um, any of your responses in these exercises to be really tracked just in relation to your profile so that it automatically, you know, tracks your engagement in these exercises to minimize the work of, um, you know, putting together that MDCOT certificate as you just sort of complete the exercises on the platform. That's really all you need to do. And that will automatically be tracked towards those experiment, um, those experience points that will accumulate for your MDCOT certificate. So when you first see this, there will be a red question mark and a little swivel sign. If you click on those, it'll assign the worksheet to your account. And then you can also access it again from the central page more towards the bottom of our kind of our, our learning hub. If you are somebody that prefers to reflect just really on your own, maybe you prefer to handwrite it, there's also a link to these reflective questions in a Google Doc format that you can print from your computer at home and just make the space as wide as you want to write into, or you can type on your own and just kind of head back here and enter um, the amount of time you invested in this personal reflection. Um, Really, I'm the only one that has access on the back end that could possibly see your responses here. Um, so we want to encourage you to really reflect on your past roles and your learning and patterns, what it means to experiment with inhabiting new roles on this platform. Um, there's links to resources about hyperarousal, the zone of tolerance, the victim rec- rescuer perpetrator triangle, as well as scapegoating. I think there's so much fodder to reflect on the roles that this has played in our discourse, our discussion, maybe past learning environments and what it means to imagine them a little bit differently. Um, I thought I might read some of these questions out loud for those of you that are listening, so you can just start pondering um, your own reflections. So, for example, what roles uh, have I noticed in my past learning experiences that I tend to inhabit? Maybe the top dog, the underdog, the observer, the debater, the high performer, the devil's advocate. In the context of building a new experimental learning community, how might I play around with trying out new roles and approaches to learning? What are signs that I'm entering a hyper-arousal state? What three strategies can I go to to support my nervous system and well-being when I notice I'm in a hyper-arousal state? How have I had past experiences falling into the victim-perpetrator-rescuer triangle? How did it feel to be involved in that cycle? How can we play with relating to the cycle differently when we notice it happening? What are signs that scapegoating is starting to take place in a community? 
What can we do to address this pattern and heal to restore balance and improve the quality of our problem solving and our inquiry together? What strategies might we consider in opening the question of shaping our group norms and agreements to support an inclusive environment of learning and play while navigating disorienting dilemmas together and separately? What does it look like to work towards an inclusive, non-hierarchical learning experience and community? Often the needs for inclusion, safety, and accessibility of one person or group can directly conflict with the needs for inclusion, safety, and accessibility for another person or group. What strategies can we use to mindfully navigate this reality while still seeking to cultivate inclusive and safe spaces for meaningful online learning? And how much time did you spend on this reflection exercise? Um, also linked below is an opportunity to share your thoughts and resources and discussion together on the UpCoach Disorienting Dilemma Group Support Forum associated with this lesson and the orientation module. Um, I'll definitely get some posts started there that we can start thinking about how we can support each other through these disorienting dilemmas, maybe some of the past disorienting dilemmas that we've had or examples of disorienting dilemmas, and you can share what's been useful to you. Thank you so much for joining in this discussion today.